Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Cindy Adams Show. I am about to speak with David Corrins. He is considered today probably the number one scenic designer on Broadway. He has done something like 51 shows. He has gotten every award there is. He designed Beetlejuice. He designed Hamilton. He's now designing 1,200 other things. He is the number one, and I am now about to speak with David Corrins. We met originally a couple of years ago, and you took me backstage to see the 1700s set that you created for Hamilton. I'd never, yeah. nobody has ever seen anything as fantastic as that. The show spanned 30 years, countless locations. Tell me about that. How did that even begin in your consciousness? Hamilton? Yeah, how did you start? How did you know what to do? Um, well, I mean, I, uh, I met with our phenomenally talented writer, Lynn, and our incredibly talented director, Tommy, and we talked a little bit about how we wanted the show to not have to um, ever pause to go from location to location so that we knew that we had to make some kind of a metaphor for the time period and the show um, that we were depicting. And so we really landed on this idea of what would it be like if we were building the foundation of the country, um, which is kind of what the founding fathers were doing at the time. And so that's really what our design became, which was a, a really a look at um, what it meant to be creating the foundation of a country and scaffolding that up. And that's kind of a, a version of what the, the design is. It had. I don't quite understand what you just said. Uh, I I understand what you're saying, but my my brain doesn't take it in. There was something like 51 numbers. You had a a brick wall, and you had red brick. You had to redo bricks if they faded. Tell. Can you tell us? Since we all loved Hamilton, can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. Um, so when when you design a show, you do a lot of research, right? And so because, as you said, the show takes place um, in 51 musical numbers, or at the time it was like 51 different, you know, it's not anymore, but um, uh, different, many, many different locations, you do research, right? And when you do that research, yeah. you come up with fairly realistic-looking places. Um, we knew that we didn't want to have to change painstakingly from one location to the other, so what we did was we came up with a structure that could service the entire show. Um, and that structure was kind of a tapestry of early American architecture that um, was evocative of everything from a town square to, you know, lo interior locations. But that, that wooden scaffolding structure around it really was meant to be um, – almost like people, carpenters at the time, were building this big, huge brick wall and this kind of foundational structure. And so it works in this metaphoric way, which is that um, 
you know, these days when you see buildings getting built in New York, you see all that metal scaffolding. But back in the day, they would build these kind of wooden structures up against brick brick walls, and you would see them laying bricks one at a time. Um, you know, for for you know, in the in the late 1700s, early 1800s, and that's really what our design is. Um, and so that's what I mean by a sort of foundational thing and a, and a look at kind of scaffolding up um, uh, next to a building. Well- David, what what is your background? How did you become a stupid question? But as how did you become a set designer? What was your background? Well, I started, um, you know, rearranging furniture in my home, in my in my uh, my childhood bedroom, and um, <laughs> and then I, I was kind of a I was a musician and an athlete and a and a theater kid, and I knew that I didn't want to be a performer. Um, so I took early courses um, uh, about beginning techniques and design, which taught me a little bit about scenery and lighting and costume and sound design. And I had a real talent to think visually. Um, and so over the years, I continued to hone my craft. I, I went to Williamstown Theater Festival and worked my years up from an internship all the way to eventually running the design department. Um, I got a, a, a specialized degree at UMass Amherst um, from the Commonwealth Honors College with a concentration in design. And then when I moved to New York, I was assisting lots of other designers while I was building my design career. And I just continuously said yes to projects that weren't necessarily theatrical. And so I started doing rock concerts and interiors, architecture, hospitality, immersive experiences, and just on and on and on, film, television, theater. And so I learned a lot of different skills from all of those different disciplines and really try and apply them to other disciplines. So the things that you learn when you're making a piece of theater are very different than what you learn when you're making a, an award show or an immersive experience or a movie, let's say. But um, they're all sort of different, different ways to attack and solve similar kinds of design challenges and creative challenges. And that I've always really loved. The sort of variety of the work helps make all the work better. Okay. You've done, you've done maybe, maybe more than 25 Broadway shows. I'm, you know, we, Beetle, Beetlejuice, so, so many of them. Tell me, how does it begin with research, with talking to the director, with, opening a drawing in your studio, we don't understand because it's so magnificent for us. How does it begin? Yeah. It begins It begins with a conversation with the director, and it begins with um, uh, reading the script. Always reading the script, listening to the music, a conversation with the director, and then, yes, a tremendous amount of research. Like I said, I like to do research in two different ways. The first is very realistic research. So if it's a house like Beetlejuice, kind of getting research that might depict specifically what that is, or in Hamilton's case, you know, doing research of what the Schuyler Mansion might look like, or a town square might look like, or Washington's tent. Um, but then I also like to do the layer of research that is much more abstract. So with Beetlejuice, I did a lot of research that might be like cobwebs or infinite looking tunnels or, you know, other things like that that are sort of more abstract and just inspirational. And what I try and do is answer the physical needs moment to moment of the show while thinking both in metaphor and on a literal plane. And then we start sketching. We start sketching both in top-down view, like a ground plan or a floor plan, how people and furniture and scenery are going to move through the space. 
and then also in elevation, like a front-on view that will help you give you the shapes of the walls or the environment that people are going to move around. And you bring those sketches into the conversations with the director and your collaborators, and you bring all that research in, and you kind of talk about things that sort of feel like the project or the show that you're doing. Okay, so and then from there, eventually, you'll move into like model form and renderings and other other ways to communicate your ideas. What's the difference? I know the enormous difference, but to explain to those of us listening, the difference between doing sets for Broadway or sets versus television. You've done the Oscars. What 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 is the basic difference in 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 the two functions? Well, yeah, the basic difference is in a piece of theater. Um, the audience's experience is always scaled to a six-foot-tall or a five-foot-something-tall human being. And so in a theater, the only way that you have to control the eye of the audience member is through lighting design, right? The, the set designer creates the world, and then the lighting designer reveals it. And so if you're an audience member, you can, even though there's a song going on downstage center, you can move your eyes around the space and the environment. But in a piece of theater or, I'm sorry, in a piece of TV or an award show or a movie, you can zoom in and, and really um, force the audience to see exactly what and only what you want them to see. So, for instance, um, if you think about the filming of Hamilton versus the, you know, on Disney Plus versus the yeah, live okay. theatrical experience yeah. – you you know if if you're watching the Schuyler sisters in on the theater, you can see them all full body standing there, walking on the turntable, singing, you know, the greatest city in the world. But in Disney Plus, they might cut in directly on Angelica's face, and her entire face would be the size of the screen. It gives you a different level of attachment to to the character. It gives you a different level of attachment to the emotion of the song, and really the filmmaker, the cinematographer, and the editor have a big say in what the production design looks like as opposed to in theater where you're always seeing things full scale to the scale of a person. So that so brings up the, that, when that, you're that brings up on the next question. You are so talented and you've gotten so many awards and you're probably the number one designer on Broadway. What does that mean when do you have creative control or must you listen to the director? How does it work? <laughs> um, it works. Uh, you must listen to the director. <laughs> you okay. always must listen to the director. Okay. Um, you know, that said, I think that uh, a partnership with the director or a relationship with the director is a partnership. And um, when you're when it's the best form of collaboration, you don't really know when the conceiving of space uh, you know, when, when one party has come up with something versus the other. And so the best collaborations are the ones that are seamless. And I guess I would imagine that you wouldn't hire me um, or one wouldn't hire me if they didn't want, you know, my opinion, my sensibility, et cetera. And so uh, the, director, the director rules and um, you work for them. But I like to hope that when they hire you that you work with them, not for them. Did you ever screw up? Did your sets ever screw up? Did they ever fall down? <laughs> Anything? Of course. Well, uh, tell in me. 2001, in 2001, um, I, uh, I founded a theater company, uh, a not-for-profit theater company um, with Carolyn Cantor, and we the very first play that we ever produced 
um, was a revival of Calderon de la Barca's Life's a Dream. And we had um, a cave set, which was a kind of a pop-up mountainous structure that came out of the floor. And on the very first night we ever, you know, I was the producer and the designer. And on the very first night we ever had it in front of the audience, the cables broke and the entire thing <laughs> fell over. And I walked out of the audience, down the hall, down the aisle, went on stage. I said, welcome everyone to Edge Theater Company. And I picked the mountain up and I sat there for the rest of the scene and then gently put it down <laughs> once the scene was over. So what did the audience applaud? What happened? Of course, everyone thought it was like the most endearing and incredible thing. People love mess up. Were you not panicked? Did you not panic? Were human. Um, I mean, I guess inside I, I panicked, but I wanted, you know, as a producer and as a designer, you feel so much <laughs> responsibility to the storytelling that you'll do whatever you can. Yeah, I understand. To stop the emergency and keep the audiences um, and the performers' experience continuing forward. Okay, I'm talking to David Corrins, who's the number one set designer on Broadway and probably everywhere else, and including my living room. So if when the show is over, David, where do these sets go? Uh, I suppose it depends on... Um, which sets you're talking about. If you're talking about Broadway sets, oftentimes we try and scavenge them um, uh, you know, for potentially future road productions or touring productions or maybe like European productions. But in general, Broadway shows get put straight into a dumpster, sadly. You mean a whole huge set that costs so much money gets junked? That's what I mean. I You don't save the walls for something else? No. I mean, you have a bunch of different issues. One of them is it costs a lot of money to store. The other is they're oftentimes made out of very specific materials. And also the last thing is it's, it's the intellectual property is owned ultimately by the designer. And so you can't really save them and then give them to another production because inevitably the wall that I want for a certain production or the way that it's specifically built is, you know, probably not going to work for other things. They try and save some of the things, you know, large curtains, soft goods, lighting fixtures, things like that. Um, but in general, the stuff is always so specific. That's why every show and project looks so different from the other one. You mean uh, I couldn't take a wall from one show and stick it in my apartment? I mean, you're the great and powerful you, so if you want that, I could probably arrange it. But oh, that's a nice you probably thing. don't want it. That's, they're, yeah. meant, they're meant to look really good from 70 feet away. They're not meant to look good right up close. So on, on any set, is it done on a tight deadline, On a tight, also on a tight financial line? I mean, you yes. are so I, lavish and fabulous. Yes, I, How does that I work? Would say, I would say that um, – you know, first of all, the work expands the amount of time allotted. There is wet paint on every single project, every single time when the audience shows up. That's a, you can guarantee that. No one ever, like, you know, flies in completely done um, and is sitting there twiddling their thumbs before the audience shows up. That's number one. And number two, the, I remember, like, there was a great designer who said to me when I, when I was just coming up, I said, what is it like to design at the Metropolitan Opera? Or, like, what's it like to design at these big venues? And they said to me, the problems are the exact same. Just add three zeros onto the back of every number. And it's really true. You know, there's like, there's just like a never really enough money to do what you want. And I think that's because we try and show up to all the projects with boundless imagination. 
and we try and think of the best possible way to service the project. And I think the people who are really successful are people who find a way to make what shows up on stage or on film or on camera the most extraordinary, imaginative-looking thing, but that they can do it on budget. Some and that's your, a challenge in its own right. Some of your big stars, did they ever walk into wet paint? Did they ever screw up or kick a set by accident and it <laughs> fell down? Because I was a klutz when I was a kid, and I was always walking into the wrong thing, opening the wrong door. So doesn't that happen with actors sometimes? Uh, sure. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, we've had a lot of near misses. Um, we've had a lot of misses. And um, luckily, uh, and I'm knocking on wood, both actual wood and my head, um, nothing, you know, <laughs> dr- super dramatic has ever happened. Okay. So tell us now. You told us in the beginning. Tell us again because I'm brain dead. What are you doing now? You're doing so many things. Tell us, tell us, tell us. Um, well, you know, I, I run a 20-person um creative suite and agency studio that basically helps any brand organization, artist, institution tell the best version of the story that they possibly can. So whether that's Lin-Manuel Miranda and Tommy Kale trying to tell the story of Hamilton, or that is David Blaine trying to do a Las Vegas magic residency or whatever it is. So we, um, we have coming to Broadway this summer, Here Lies Love, which was the David Byrne Fat Boy Slim musical that happened at the public theater, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. And we are so unbelievably thrilled and excited about it. And we're doing it in this incredible, immersive way where we're basically ripping out all of the seats from the orchestra level. And we're building this massive, massive, massive structure where people will be able to stand inside of it and sit on the sides of it, up looking down into it. And it's going to completely change the way people have ever seen a Broadway show. Um, Totally thrilling and very, very exciting. Like I said, I'm also directing David Blaine's show in Las Vegas. It's actually where I am right now. I'm sort of backstage uh, about to go into rehearsal. Okay. Before I let you go, one more question. Did you design your own home? (laughs) Um, I I mean, I picked the furniture and I scavenged it together. Yes, (laughs) if that's what you mean. Um, People for years have always imagined like that my apartment has, you know, walls that fly or spin around or, you know, furniture that stores into the walls. I, you know, I think that I'm actually a minimalist at heart and that even though I spend all day trying to make fabulous environments for people to live and for stories to, you know, to, to be told inside of them, when I get home, I want simplicity. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You're the number one, and thank you for coming on, sweetie. I loved it. I loved oh, talking to you. Thanks for having me. I love you, too. I'll talk thanks, to you. Thanks, honey. Bye. Bye. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on.